a woman who entered a haagen store on the Kansas City Plaza for an ice cream cone. After choosing her ice cream, she turned around and found herself face-to-face with Paul Newman. He was in town filming the movie Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. He smiled and he said hello. And Newman's bright blue eyes caused her knees to shake. <laughs> she managed to pay for her cone and then left the shop with her heart pounding. When she gained her composure, she realized that she didn't have the snack that she paid for, so she started back to the ice cream shop, and when she got to the door, she met Newman, who was on his way out, and he spoke to her. He said, are you looking for your ice cream cone? And she nodded, so starstruck that words wouldn't even come out of her mouth. And then Newman spoke up again, and he said, you put it in your purse with your change. (laughs) Sometimes we do really strange things when we're under the spell of our idols. Welcome to our discussion of modern-day idolatry. The words idol and idolatry never appear in the text that we read from the Gospel of Mark this morning. In fact, it was well hidden to just about everyone who witnessed this scene, but Jesus exposed it anyway. I'd like to walk you through four lessons about modern-day idolatry that come from this encounter between Jesus and this rich young ruler. Here's the first one. Modern-day idolatry is often well hidden. Verse 17 says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? We skip down a few verses later, verse 20. Jesus has begun a conversation about the Ten Commandments. And he says, Teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of those Gospels, all include this encounter between Jesus and this man. Matthew tells us he was young. Luke adds that he was a ruler. The word for ruler often refers to someone who served on the Sanhedrin, the 70-member Jewish ruling council, to whom the Roman governor had given all of the affairs of of Jewish life and, and, and religion and social activity to govern. So this man is often referred to as, uh, by Bible students as the rich young ruler. This young man looks like a great candidate for Jesus to welcome as a new disciple. He has the right energy. He runs to meet Jesus. He has the right posture. He comes to Jesus on his knees. He even seems to have the right pursuit. He wants to know how to have eternal life. Isn't this why Jesus came? Didn't he come to offer this very thing, eternal life? I don't know about you, but if somebody walks into my office and says, I want to know how I get eternal life. We're going to have a very lively conversation. I love talking about that particular issue. Unfortunately, this man also offered two tip-offs that reveal that something was wrong inside of him. Something was wrong with his thinking. The first clue was the way he posed his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The first part of that question is, what must I do? The Pharisees and the popular teachers of the day in first century Israel believed that getting into heaven was a matter of doing the right things. They had skipped over 
a whole lot of verses in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 64.6, that says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. This is the way of religion. Do the right things and earn your way to God's blessings. Every major religion in the world operates that way, and Christianity does too when it gets away from the Bible, when it gets away from grace. This is what Job's three friends thought back in the Old Testament when we know Job was being tested by God, but they're all convinced that Job had done something horrendously wrong and had brought all this calamity on his life. And then comes Jesus teaching the revolutionary idea that entry into the kingdom of God comes through humbling the heart and trusting in the promises of the Messiah, Jesus himself. The second problem was that this man was convinced of his own moral goodness. So Jesus engages him in this discussion about the Ten Commandments. And he quickly says that he has kept them all from the time he was a boy. This rich young man could not see his problem with idolatry for a number of reasons. First, because he thought that God evaluates us based on our performance. And second, because he was convinced that he was morally as good as a person can be. I have news for you. We're not as bad as we can possibly be. But we're not as good as we can possibly be either. And there are an awful lot of people who are convinced that they don't really need Jesus they don't really need the grace of God because they're already good. They're as good as they should be. They're as good as anybody could reasonably hope to be. So who needs God? But this rich young man was about to find out that his hidden idolatry was going to be exposed. We'll get to that in a moment, but before we move on, let me just point out, perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, I like this guy, he has an orientation that's actually a lot like mine and, and you're starting to feel uncomfortable right now. You've always thought that God evaluates based on what we do and, and maybe you've always considered yourself to be more or less morally good, certainly better than the guy down the street. So I want you to see something really important. Jesus often makes us uncomfortable when he wants to move us off of a false idea. And he will use anything in his disposal to shake us up in order to get us to this place because he loves us so greatly. And I want you to see something really important. The very next verse reveals how Jesus reacted to this man's comments. Verse 21 says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And so in love, Jesus had more to say to him that would upset the way that he looked at the world and the way that he looked at himself. And I want you to know that Jesus is watching over you and your life too. And whether you love him or not, he loves you. Here's the second discovery. Modern idolatry is about what we love most at any given time. Verse 20 Teacher, he declares, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. But notice how he goes on. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. 
He went away sad because he had great wealth. At this point, I want to ask a question. I think we should ask a question. What is idolatry? Augustine, in the late 4th century, early 5th century, uh, answered that question this way. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshipped. That's an interesting idea. Idolatry is worshiping anything that was meant to be used and using anything that is meant to be worshipped. Tim Keller, the wonderful pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, puts it this way. Idolatry happens when we take good things and make them ultimate things. In other words, we get our priorities mixed up. So remember, Jesus loved this guy. And look what happens next. Earlier, when Jesus had spoken about the commandments, he turned toward the final six commandments. The final six were all about how we are to treat other people. And so Jesus took him at his word that he had pretty much gotten all of these right. He doesn't debate him on this. What Jesus knew was that he had temporarily skipped over the first four commands, which are all about how we are to love God. The religious community of the first century figured that they had the first four down cold. And so what they emphasized with people was the outward behavior that was seen in the actions toward other people. And the rich young ruler falls, that, falls, falls in that line of thinking. But what he missed was what was buried in the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And now Jesus touched on his blind spot. Outwardly, the guy looked great on the moral scale, according to the way people were appraised by their culture at the time. But inwardly, Jesus knew there was something missing, and this guy knew that there was something missing. That's why he came to Jesus and on his knees asked this question. I've been following the system as I know it so far. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He had this deep insecurity that something was lacking. So Jesus tells him, there's one thing you lack. Here's a test I'll give to you. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. It's there that Luke tells us that this guy had great wealth. The terms that used that are used here really tell us that, that he was tremendously loaded. What was his blind spot? He loved his possessions more than he loved God. He loved his possessions more than he loved Jesus. It wasn't just that he had a lot of possessions. It wasn't just that he was rich. It was that his love for them was greater. And when Jesus put this test on his shoulders, go and give it all away. I'll give you riches in heaven. Come follow me. It exposed the inner idolatry. He loved keeping control of his wealth more than he loved following Jesus. And so Mark tells us he walked away sad. The word sad is probably an inadequate translation here. The Greek word used here in other places in the New Testament is translated as uh, he grieved deeply. Why such grief? He'd chosen, and he knew he had chosen, to put something else ahead of Jesus, something else ahead of God. 
whenever we allow something else to stand in the place of Jesus, it will cause great grief in our lives. So here's the big idea for this morning. We are controlled by anything we love more than God. And we are free when our love for God flows through all things. Here's the third discovery. Modern idolatry is due to failure to trust. We go back again to verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. The next question that I want to ask is, why did this rich young ruler walk away? I think the first reason is that he loved his possessions and his wealth more than he loved Jesus, and and Jesus' challenge exposed that. But there's also a second reason. He wasn't willing to trust the promises of God, the promises of the Messiah. So Jesus says to him directly, you already think that I'm a good teacher. If you really do now, trust me, and I will give you treasures in heaven. He would have treasures in heaven and eternal life, the very thing that he claimed that he wanted most. Are you familiar with the acronym FOMO, fear of missing out? There's a Catholic prison chaplain, Paul Andrew, who says this guy had FOBO, fear of a better offer. He chose the temporal things he could hold on to instead of the eternal promises of God. Folks, this is the dilemma that we all face. We are asked to do things in the name of Christ and sometimes even to make great sacrifices in life, believing that the one who loves us most most did not design us for this world alone, but for something far greater for the kingdom of heaven that is yet to come. And that's where a faith transaction either comes in or it gets stalled. We are asked to take God at his word. We are asked to take Jesus, the son of God, at his word. And some people get hung up right there. And this guy was one of them. And Jesus let him walk. Not because Jesus didn't love him. Actually, Mark tells us openly that Jesus did love him. He let him walk because he saw very clearly that this guy loved his stuff more than God. And he trusted in the joys of this fading temporal realm more than Jesus' promises that could never be taken away. That's the gospel challenge right there. All three of these gospels place this encounter right after Jesus welcomes a group of little children. If you have your own Bible, go back and just look back one paragraph of Scripture. The scene is simple. People were bringing their kids to Jesus. They wanted him to put their hands on them and to bless them. And the disciples were shooing them away. They thought Jesus was too busy for that. Jesus was too important for that. I think the disciples were really getting the heart of Jesus wrong here. When I was reading this the other day, I wrote a note in my margin There's four letters, N-G-V-D, Next Generation Vision Deficiency. 
That's what they were suffering from. Don't look it up. I just made that up this week. So you won't find any research about it. But it's the one thing we never want to have around here is next generation vision deficiency. And when Jesus saw this, Mark writes that he was indignant. He didn't give up on the disciples, but he was really upset with them in that moment. The disciples are people we look up to, but they really got it wrong on this one. And this is where Jesus says those well-loved, very familiar words. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, and this is the most important part, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. There's an important contrast that we need to see here between these two paragraphs of Scripture if you will, two uh, episodes of Scripture. The disciples wanted to shoo the children away while Jesus included them. And then in the next text, the one we're looking at this morning, a man comes to him who outwardly looks like a person who is about to be an important addition to the followers of Jesus. And Jesus lets him walk away. So Jesus points out that we need to receive the kingdom like a little child. What was he trying to tell us? Jesus was pointing out that the faith of a child is uncomplicated. But we have, as adults have this uncanny ability to overcomplicate things. We add all kinds of complexity that isn't necessary when a child gets Jesus easily. Have you experienced that? Some of you have come to faith later in life had to climb over all kinds of complexity that we add to this whole faith conundrum. And we're amazed by kids who just say, oh yeah, I understand Jesus, I get it, I trust him. Boom, and they're off and running. And he wants us to be like children in that way. I think it is intentional that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all place this particular scene with Jesus and the children directly before this encounter with the rich young ruler. Sometimes we need to reassess the importance we place on developing faith in children. I'd like to make a side note about this concept. One thing that I've been teaching for 30 years around here is that one of the top priorities of every generation is always to reach the next generation. That we do not succeed unless we excel at handing off our faith to those who come after us. In recent years, there have been a number of studies that show that today's church is not excelling in this area. We have tended to compartmentalize too much. Sometimes, so that our experience as church is that when a family shows up, we're instantly separating them. Mom and dad go in this direction, the younger kids go in that direction, the older kids go in another direction, and then we all get together back in the parking lot and we, we gather together again. And we don't learn together. And somehow, with what we're doing across the country, there have been a number of studies that showing that there are too many kids that are coming out of their church experience and when they get to be young adults, they're not connecting all the dots. And the baton isn't being handed off in the way that it needs to be handed off. Of course, we realize that different age groups learn differently and there are all kinds of valid reasons for t- teaching different things to different groups and different styles to different ages. One of our goals the last few years here at North River has to become, to become intergenerational wherever possible so that we are learning together 
the older are learning with the younger and the younger are learning from the older and we're, we're blending all of that together. Do you understand and agree with that goal? Yeah? I hope so. Because I'm going to ask you to go through an experiment with us. Our staff has presented an idea to our overseers and to our deacons about an experiment. What's the experiment? Instead of continuing to separate children and adults quite as much as we have, we want to invest in educating parents and children together in a new way for us here at North River. We're going to provide some teaching and instruction, instruction about communion and then include some families along with our deacons, parents and children together in serving communion as part of our worship services. With guidance, with teaching beforehand, we want them to participate with us, to serve with us, and to experience some of the awe of being a part of what God does in the midst of a communion service. One of our pastors will still lead the communion ceremony. Our deacons will serve too. And we're going to guide and then trust these parents and some of our older kids who are ready and let them rise to the opportunity. And our hope is that we will all be blessed by experimenting and seeing what God does. Here's the fourth discovery. Back on track here. Modern idolatry is only broken by loving God more. You've got to scratch out some of what I wrote there. I didn't finish my thought on point number four in your notes. Modern idolatry is only broken by loving God more. So verse 23 takes this further. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. You may be amazed to read those words coming from Jesus too. Jesus says again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of, of God. Jesus' point was not simply that rich people have a problem. His point was that we all have a problem. We are all capable of loving something, anything, more than we love Jesus. Jesus does not say that all people are wealth or controlled by possessions or that having wealth is necessarily a bad thing. There are many wealthy people who serve the Lord wholeheartedly, generously, faithfully. And he doesn't say that the poor automatically believe. We don't necessarily. But we do live within a culture that tends to value the rich and devalue the poor. And so we have to put stress on how we help those who are struggling. And we can have the tendency to trust in our wealth as our source of security rather than seeing God as our ultimate source of security. We can love freedom and independence more than serving Jesus. We can fall into the trap of pursuing how other people praise us more than seeking the praise of Jesus. We can love our sense of being relevant and up with the times more than we love following Jesus. In this age, we can love an addiction to a high or even addiction to sex or addiction to power or fame more than we love Jesus. Or we can so greatly want to love our own way of doing things more than trusting his way of doing things. 
And all these are forms of modern-day idolatry. So how do we break these levels of modern idolatry? Well, one approach would be to go about smashing our idols. This week I, w- I read a wonderful article by Lori Ferguson Wilbert called The Idol of Idolatry. And she writes about how she spent her, her 20s trying to smash down every idol in her life. And she became obsessed with her idols. She likened it to playing a great game of whack-a-mole. Every time she felt like she got in control of one, another one would pop up and she'd have to whack that one down. And what she realized after more than 10 years of doing this was that it kept her, this obsession kept her from seeing how God was trying to use her fears, her doubts, her loves and hopes to show her more of himself. Sometimes God allows hardships in our lives to force us to to depend on him more. And she realized that rather than resting in the finished work of Christ in her life, she was trying to prove herself to God in this way. Her idol smashing had become her new idol. Wow. That made me think. Instead of inviting the idol in during the next moment of temptation. Try this. Invite God into the deepest parts of your soul when you feel the pull towards something else. Acknowledge the pull. Acknowledge the tension. Acknowledge the tug toward the old idols, whatever they are. Realize that everybody struggles at some level, but don't use that as a cop-out. Tim Keller writes, The human nature is like a factory that never stops producing idols. That's what I hate about myself. It's what you hate about yourself. Recognize that the idols of our lives always deliver less than they promise. The idols of our lives can only mimic the greater pleasures that come from finding our deepest pleasures in God, in Jesus. The first step in destroying The idol in your life is to believe in the promises of Jesus, the very thing that became the barrier where the rich young ruler stopped. When you put your faith and trust in him as the Savior, trusting that he is the one who secures your place in the kingdom of heaven, we start the process. John Piper writes it this way, we make a God out of whatever we find most joy in. So find your greatest joy in God and be done with all idolatry. We are controlled by anything we love more than God. And we are free when our love for God flows through all things in our lives. Final story. By that great author, Anonymous, A wise woman who was traveling in the mountains found a precious stone in a stream. The next day, she met another traveler who was hungry and the woman opened her bag to share her food. When she opened her bag, the hungry traveler saw the precious stone and asked the woman to give it to him. And she did so without hesitation. The traveler left rejoicing in his good fortune. He knew that the stone was worth enough to give him financial security for a lifetime. But a few days later, he came back to return the stone to the wise woman. I've been thinking, he said, I know how valuable this stone is, but I give it back to you in the hope that you can give me something 
even more precious. Give me whatever it is that you have within you that enabled you to give me the stone. That's what we're after. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for sending Jesus into the world. Thank you for sending Jesus into the world to answer questions on the hearts of people like us. Hear the person who may be saying, God, I have a trust problem and I need to put my faith in Jesus. I've always put my faith in myself and so this is hard. But here I come, doubts and all, realizing that I'm standing in the same place that that young man was standing in. And I don't want to walk away from Jesus filled with grief because he gave me an offer that will last for eternity. And I chose the flashy baubles of our time that I can't keep in the end instead. Give me this eternal life. Give me a love for God and a love for Jesus that will fill my soul in a way that I have never known before. God, hear the veteran Christ follower who may be saying, Lord, I didn't expect this today. I didn't expect to come into church and have you punch me right in the nose and make me feel exposed because I have idols that I've erected in my life. And they're getting in the way of me loving Jesus. Give me the courage to face them. Give me the courage to name them. Strip away their power as I ask you to fill me with a greater and greater love that I can have for your Father God. It will carry me through every day and allow me to be alive in a way that I have not yet been alive even though I've been a Christian for many years. I don't want to live bound by the old chains. Make me new on the inside. Allow me to really live the life that you want me to live. Set me free to follow Jesus with abandon and with a full heart. In Jesus' name.